Section two of Days with Walt Whitman by Edward Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A visit to Walt Whitman in 1877. It was on the 2nd of May, 1877, that crossing the water from Philadelphia, I knocked at the door of 431 Stephen Street, Camden. The house, a narrow three-storied one, stood in one of those broad tree-planted streets which are common in the States, and Whitman was staying there, boarding with his brother Colonel George Whitman and wife, making the establishment at any rate his headquarters, though frequently absent from it. I waited a few minutes in a sitting-room of the usual type, one or two ornamental tables with photograph-books, things under glass, shades, etc., while Walt was called upstairs. He soon came down, slowly, leaning heavily on the banisters, always dragging somewhat his paralyzed leg, at first sight quite an old man with long, grey, almost white beard, and shaggy head and neck, grey dress, too, but tall, erect, and at closer sight not so old, a florid, fresh complexion, pure grey-blue eye, no sign of age there, and full, strong, well-formed hands. At the foot of the staircase he took me by the hand and said, I was afraid we should miss, after all, this in reference to a previous unsuccessful call I had made. There was no hurry in his manner. Having found me a seat, and then only leaving hold of my hand, he sat down himself and asked me what news I brought from Britain. War had just been declared between Russia and Turkey. Like other Americans, his sympathies lay with Russia. His idea was that Russia stood in need of a southern outlet, Constantinople, for her people and growing energies, that Turkey was falling in pieces, and that England was beginning to pursue, quote, the wise policy of absolute non-intervention, Conversation then turned on England. He asked about friends there, also about myself, some questions. Meanwhile, in that first ten minutes, I was becoming conscious of an impression which subsequently grew even more marked. The impression, namely, of immense vista, or background, in his personality. If I had thought before, and I do not know that I had, that Whitman was eccentric, unbalanced, violent, my first interview certainly produced quite a contrary effect. No one could be more considerate, I may almost say courteous. No one could have more simplicity of manner and freedom from egotistic wrigglings, and I never met anyone who gave me more the impression of knowing what he was doing than he did. Yet away and beyond all this I was aware of a certain radiant power in him, a large benign effluence and inclusiveness as of the sun which filled out the place where he was, yet with something of reserve and sadness in it too, and a sense of remoteness and inaccessibility. Some such impressions, at any rate, I gathered in the first interview. I remember how I was most struck in his face by the high arch of the eyebrows, giving a touch of childlike wonder and contemplation to his expression. Yet his eyes, though full of a kind of wistful tenderness, were essentially not contemplative, but perceptive, active, rather than receptive, lying far back, steady, clear with small, definite pupils and heavy lids of passion and experience. 
a face of majestic simple proportion like a Greek temple, as someone has said, the nose Greek in outline, straight, but not at all thin or narrow, rather the contrary, broad between the brows and meeting the line of the forehead without any great change of direction, the forehead high with horizontal furrows, but not excessively high, the head domed and rising to a great height in the middle, above the ears not projecting behind, ears large and finely formed, mouth full, but almost quite concealed by hair. A head altogether impressing one by its height, and by a certain untamed wild hawk look, not uncommon among the Americans. After some conversation, Whitman proposed a walk across to Philadelphia. Putting on his grey slouch hat, he sallied forth with evident pleasure, and taking my arm as a support, walked slowly the best part of a mile to the ferry. Crossing the ferry was always a great pleasure to him. His Brooklyn ferry and the section entitled Delaware River Days and Nights in Specimen Days sufficiently prove this. The life of the streets and of the people was so near, so dear. The men on the ferry steamer were evidently old friends, and when we landed on the Philadelphia side we were before long quite besieged. The man or woman selling fish at the corner of the street, the tramway conductor, the loafers on the pavement, a word of recognition from Walt, or as often from the other first. Presently a cheery shout from the top of a dray, and before we'd gone many yards farther, the driver was down and standing in front of us, his horses given to the care of some bystander. He was an old Broadway stager, quote, had not seen Walt for three or four years, unquote, and tears were in his eyes as he held his hand. We were now brought to a standstill, and others gathered round. George was ill, and Walt must go and see him. There was a message for the children, and in his pocket the poet discovered one or two packets of sweetmeats for absent little ones. But for the most part his words were few. It was the others who spoke, and apparently without reserve. Thus we rambled through Philadelphia, mostly using the tram cars. The Yankees do not walk. The trams in their large towns are very complete, and are universally used for all but short distances. Whitman could not walk far. I was content being with him anyhow. He certainly was restfulness itself. When we reached the ferry on our return, the last bell was ringing. We might have caught the boat, but Whitman seemed not to think of hurrying. The boat went, and he sat down to enjoy life waiting for the next. A few days later, Walt, having gone into the country to stay with his dear and valued friends, the Staffords, I paid him a visit there. White Horse, or Kirkwood, was the third or fourth station from Camden on the Camden and Atlantic line, and consisted at that time of only some half-dozen houses and stores forming a centre to the scattered and outlying farmsteads of that part. The Stafford's little farm lay a mile and a half or so from the station, a five- or six-roomed wooden house, a barn, one or two fruit trees, and a few fields running down three hundred or four hundred yards to a little stream. The country level, very slightly undulating, wooded here and there, not unlike some parts of Cambridgeshire that I've seen, neither particularly attractive nor unattractive. Here on this farm, and working it himself, lived Mr. Stafford with his family. He, a loyal Methodist, sometimes acting as a local preacher, silent-mannered, dark-skinned, of bilious temperament, subject to illness, 
hard-working and faithful, his wife a fine woman of cultured expression and spiritual mind, pretty well absorbed in domestic work, two sons, young fellows, one of whom, Harry, at this time working in a printer's office in Camden, was a great ally and favorite of Walt's, a grown-up daughter, and one or two children. Here Whitman would often stay, weeks or months at a time, boarding and living with the family and attracting the members of it to him and himself to them with the ties of enduring friendship. Mrs. Stafford once said to me, He is a good man. I think he is the best man I ever knew. It was his delight, and doubtless one of the chief attractions of this favorite resort, to go down and spend a large part of the day by the creek which I have spoken of, and which figures so largely in specimen days. At a point not a quarter of a mile distant from the house, it widened into a kind of little lake surrounded by trees, the haunt of innumerable birds, and here Whitman would sit for hours in an old chair, silent, enjoying the scene, becoming part of it almost, himself, or would undress and bathe in the still deep pool. At this time he was nearly sixty years old, and for some eight years on and off had been stricken with paralysis. As is well known, he attributed his partial recovery very largely to the beneficence of this creek, with its water baths and sun baths and open-air influences generally. That day being Sunday, I found the family all at home, and Whitman in the midst of them. When the opportunity occurred, I told him something of the appreciation of his writings that had grown up in England during those years. After a pause, he asked if the Rossetti edition was out of print. I said I thought so. W. Quote, I hope it is. I approved of Rossetti's plan for the time being, but now would rather appear without alteration. End quote. Square bracket. I am here simply transcribing my notes made a day or two after. These are not his exact words, but as good as I could remember. And square bracket. Quote, I had hardly realized that there was so much interest in me in England. I confess I am surprised that America, to whom I have especially addressed myself, is so utterly silent. Lowell, and indeed almost all the critics, say that I am crude, inartistic. Do you think that? End quote. I said I had heard such criticisms, but I did not myself think his work crude and hasty. On the contrary, much of it seemed to me to have been written very deliberately and carefully, and as to the question of art, I thought he had laid an altogether broader basis of style, instancing some of his poems, a great foundation, others would build here and there upon it, but he had struck the main lines. W. Quote, I did, in fact, rewrite and destroy much before I published. I cannot think that I have altogether attained, but I have planted the seed. It is for others to continue the work. My original idea was that if I could bring men together by putting before them the heart of man, with all its joys and sorrows and experiences and surroundings, it would be a great thing. Up to this time I have had America chiefly in view, but this appreciation of me in England makes me think I might perhaps do the same for the old world also. I have endeavored from the first to get free as much as possible from all literary attitudinizing, to strip off integuments, coverings, bridges, and to speak straight from and to the heart. Square bracket. In reference to this, he said at another time that it had been a whim of his when writing, quote, 
to discard all conventional poetic phrases and every touch of or reference to ancient or medieval images metaphors subjects styles etc and to write de novo with words and phrases appropriate to his own days end quote, end bracket. when we went in to dinner mr stafford was already seated i think he was about to say grace walt with greater grace stood for a moment bending over him from behind and clasped stafford's head in his great hands and passed on in silence what a large sweet presence so benign yet so determined the children loved him and the little boy would lie coiled lost on his knees half asleep half awake walt's hand covering and compressing his entire face in philadelphia the day before Whitman had introduced me to his English friends, the Gilchrists. Mrs. Gilchrist, widow of Alexander Gilchrist, the biographer of Blake, was a capable and large-minded woman. A year earlier, she, with two daughters and a son, had come from England for a two- or three-years' visit to the States and had settled in Philadelphia. As is well known, she was the first of English women to fully and publicly recognize, as she did in some printed letters, the splendid genius of the poet and that at a time eighteen sixty eight or sixty nine when leaves of grass to most of the literary world was little better than the incoherent ramblings of a maniac more than once did she relate to me how on first opening the volume when her eye fell upon the fine nearly full-length engraving taken from a daguerreotype of the author she exclaimed quote, here at last is the face of christ which the painters have so long sought for, end quote. And she always maintained that the reading of the book itself did but confirm and deepen that first impression. At the Gilchrist's house, Whitman would not unfrequently stay. Indeed, there was a kind of prophet's chamber for him there, always ready. And as it happened that he was about to pay a visit there, it was arranged that I also should come. They lived at number 1929, North 22nd Street. If the American method of numbering streets and houses is prosaic, it certainly has the advantage of being practical. Philadelphia is like a chessboard. You find your way by coordinate geometry. The streets are straight, parallel, and not far from infinite in length. The address being put in your hands, you know at once the exact spot to which you're destined. I remember very well arriving, bag in hand, and finding the whole family a general custom in Philadelphia on those warm evenings, sitting out on the doorsteps, Whitman in the midst in an armchair, his white beard and hair glistening in the young moonlight, looking like some old god, the others grouped around him or at his feet. After this for a week of evenings, I made one of the party. How pleasant it was! Whitman had a knack of making ordinary life enjoyable, redeeming it from commonplaceness instead of making you feel, as so many do, that the present is a kind of squalid necessity to be got over as best may be, in view of something always in the future, he gave you that good sense of nowness, that faith that the present is enjoyable, which imparts colour and life to the thousand and one dry details of existence. As I have hinted before, he was no great talker, and would generally let the conversation ebb and flow at its own will, without effort, ready apparently for grave or gay alike. 
unlike many highly important people who seemed to enjoy holding forth to a general audience, Whitman, as I thought, preferred to let conversation turn on the pivot of personal relationship. Often as not, he would have his listener by the hand, and his words, too, had an attractive force from their very simplicity and purity from affectation or display. I think he did not really care to have conversational dealings with people, except on such a basis of personal affection. To such as he did not like, to all mere gabblers, bores, spying, and prying persons, he became as a precipice instantly and utterly inaccessible. Certainly it was one of the pleasures of his society that you always felt he was there in person, bona fide, not by deputy, and no current notion of politeness could make him do a thing he did not enjoy doing. One evening we were looking over some fine engravings, mostly portraits, Gainsborough's, Reynolds, Lilly's, and others from Mrs. Gilchrist's collection. He enjoyed them greatly, and very deliberately, dwelling long and long over some of them, criticizing style, workmanship, composition, character, etc. But when he'd had enough of it all, well, he said so. I have seldom known anyone who, though so cordial and near to others, detached and withdrew himself at times more decisively than he did, or who, on the whole, spent more time in solitude. Also no rough draft of his character would be complete which did not take into account the strong Quaker element of obstinacy which existed in him, but this might require a separate chapter. To return to our evenings, I have said something about Walt Whitman's manner in conversation. I cannot attempt to reproduce its effect, but I will just transcribe such notes of some of his remarks as I have by me. One evening conversation turned upon the Chinese. W. Quote, I fancy they are like the Germans, only more refined. My notion is that the Germans are simple, true, affectionate folk, but there is a kind of roughness, one may almost say brutishness about them. The Chinese have the same good qualities with a certain alertness and grace which the Germans lack. End quote. I quoted some accounts of Japan by a man who'd lived there for a long time, and who told me that the manners of the old Japanese aristocracy were so elaborately perfect that he himself would go any distance to get out of their way, feeling such a boor compared with them. This amused Whitman, seemed to tally with his own idea. Mrs. Gilchrist wondered, with regard to the natives of India and Orientals generally, that the degradation of the women did not bring about a gradual deterioration of the whole race. W. Quote, I suppose that among the masses of the people, the women and men too live, after all, much as they do in the West, and as they must do in all times and climes, and that the special treatment of women in the East only applies to the upper classes. The masses in every part of the globe are dominated by the necessities of nature. Thus also, among the Greeks and Romans, the peasant life must have had its races of fine women. End quote. And here he cited Juvenal and his comparison of the effeminate lady of his time with the, quote, stern, magnificent mothers, end quote, of the early days of Rome. Going on to Oriental literature, Whitman spoke of Sakuntala, the Indian drama, its modernness, the comic scenes especially being as of the times of Shakespeare, and of the great Hindu epic, the Ramayana, and told the story of Yudhisthira, 
which occurs as an episode in the latter. Conversation got round presently, I think in reference to the cramped life of high-born women in the East, to the shoddiness and vulgarity of modern well-to-do life. W. Quote, it seems a strange thing to me, this love of guilt and upholstery among the Americans, that people leading a free, natural, open-air life should, directly they make a little money, want to go in for sofas, expensively furnished rooms, dress, and the like. Yet it seems to be a law, a kind of necessity, that they should do so. I suppose it is partly that each man wishes to feel himself as good as others, to feel they can have of the best, too, democracy showing itself for a time in that way, reducing the borrowed, old-world standard of superiority to an absurdity, and I guess it will not last for ever. We did not generally sit up later than eleven. Breakfast was at seven-thirty or eight. Walt's arrival in the morning was as exhilarating as a fine sunrise. After breakfast and a chat, we would separate to our respective occupations. In the afternoon, almost every day I was there, the poet went off to Camden to visit his sister-in-law, who was at that time confined to the house and to whom I believe he was much attached. As I've said, Walt was very simple and domestic in his ways, and would quite enjoy on a rainy afternoon having a game of twenty questions, such as he had, quote, often played in camp with the soldiers during the war, end quote, or would take pleasure in preparing some little dish of his own devising for the evening meal. One evening we pressed him to read. He would not recite anything of his own, but he read out Tennyson's Ulysses in a clear, strong, and rugged tone. The subtle harmonies of the Tennysonian verse effloresced under the treatment, but the sterner qualities of the poem stood out finely. We expressed admiration. He said, quote, I guess it's about the best Tennysonian poem, end quote. Another evening, I remember, he told us how, when living at New York, he had had a fancy to visit Sing Sing Prison, the great penal establishment up the Hudson River. He obtained permission to do so, got to know one or two of the warders, and for some time went there pretty frequently. He wrote letters for the prisoners, etc. Quote, it was a whim, end quote. We had a long talk on manual labor. Most of us agreed it would be a good thing for all classes to take part in, not to be left to one class only. Whitman maintained with regard to reforms and the like that it was no good trying to benefit people, laboring people, for instance, who did not feel the need of any change. Quote, Many people came to me at one time about slavery and wondered that I was so quiet about it, but in truth I felt that abolitionists were making quite noise enough and that there were other things just as important which had to be attended to. End quote. We got talking of Abraham Lincoln, I suppose in reference to slavery, and I mentioned the story that Lincoln went out of his mind and nearly committed suicide over a love affair. Walt, who always was a great admirer of Lincoln, and who knew a good deal about him in his history, gave this a most emphatic denial, saying that Lincoln was, quote, never even near being crazy, end quote. One of the most amusing incidents of my stay occurred one morning shortly after breakfast, when a visiting card was handed in bearing the ominous inscription, Madame d'Orbigny d'Aubigny, and was quickly followed by the appearance of an elderly and loquacious little lady. 
She was one of those detached women with a reticule who travelled about the world in quest of anything interesting. She had been, she told us, all over the States and seen many celebrities, but could not return to Europe without visiting Whitman, and it was only by a piece of luck that she had found out where he was staying. However, it soon began to appear that her interest in Walt was not so great, naturally, as in herself, for after a few preliminary compliments, she settled down to tell us all about the wonderful Daubigny family to which she belonged. It ramified all over the civilized world, she said, and the name was spelt in ever so many different ways, but they were all branches of the same family. They were all related to each other, as her own name indeed showed. Walt listened in an amused manner, and for about ten minutes was quite decently courteous and patient. Then I suddenly perceived that his face was becoming precipitous. The little woman, of course, was addressing him, no one else being of any importance, but he seemed to be becoming deaf. There was no speculation in his eyes. It was rather awful. For a minute or two she tried vainly to effect a lodgment for her words, to get any kind of handhold on the sheer surface, and then gathering up her tackle she made the best of a bad job, bade a hasty good-bye, and disappeared. I told Walt about a visit I paid to Oliver Wendell Holmes, and the criticisms of Leaves of Grass which I heard on that occasion. I saw the autocrat of the breakfast-table at his house in Boston. He was then about seventy years of age a dapper, active little man, full of life and go, rather enjoying the visits of strangers. Quote, oh, yes, I have a large parish. People write to me and come and call from all parts of the world. We authors are rather vain, you know, and quite enjoy a little homage. But my parish is not as big as Longfellow's. Not as big as Longfellow's. But this is not a good time for you to see Boston. Boston is very empty now, getting up and glancing through the window. Very empty. You might almost see a fox run down the street, etc., etc. I said something about American literature and leaves of grass. Quote, oh, Whitman, he said. Well, 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 Whitman is all very well. He has capacity. But it won't do. It won't do. I tell you what, it's something like this. You know, skillful cooks say that the faintest odor the merest whiff of asafetida will give a piquant flavor to a dish. And I can believe that, but to drench it in an asafetida, no, that won't do. The poets coquette with nature and weave garlands of roses for her, but Whitman goes at her like a great hirsute man. No, it won't do. Now, he continued, the other day Lowell and Longfellow and I were chatting together and the subject of Whitman turned up, said Lowell, Quote, I can't think why there is all this stir about Whitman. I have read a good deal of his poetry, but I can't see anything in it. I can't see anything in it. End quote. Well, said Longfellow, quote, I believe the man might have done something if he had only had a decent training and education. End quote. As to my own opinion, why, said Holmes, I have already given you that, so you see what we think of him in America. End quote. Whitman was a good deal amused, and took it all in good part, saying he knew pretty well already what they thought. As the days went by, I began to see more clearly the depths which lay behind the poet's simple and unconcerned exterior. Literary persons, as a rule, write over their own heads. They talk a little bigger than themselves. But Whitman seemed to fill out leaves of grass and form an interpretation of it. 
I began to see that all he had written there was matter of absolute personal experience, that you might be sure that what was said was meant. There was the same deliberate suggestiveness about his actions and manners that you find in his writings, only, of course, with the added force of bodily presence, and far down, too, there were clearly enough visible the same strong and contrary moods, the same strange, omnivorous egotism, controlled and restrained by that wonderful genius of his for human affection and love. Quote, Who has the most enamored body? End quote were words which somehow his presence often suggested. It was with real reluctance that a week after my arrival I bade adieu to all that friendly household, and the next morning but one, from the stern of the Siberia, watched the flat shores of New England and the lighthouse that marks the entrance to Boston Harbor recede and dip below the broadening waters of the Atlantic. End of section 2 Read Amid Much Noise and Haste by Sandra, near Montreal, September 2021.